Steve Philo is ministering the word today, and Steve has been a, um, a bastion, an anchor point for five-fold uh, ministry teaching and pastoral care in this valley for lots of years, been my good friend for lots of years. He pastored Foursquare Church, Four Church in California for years. And um, he asked, he's the founding, um, founding leader of Medford Healing Rooms. Did you know that? He's the founding leader. He started Medford Healing Rooms some years ago and has been healing, uh, use of God to heal the sick and, and minister all kinds of good ways for all these years. And I, when I think of Steve, I think of the wonderful gift the fivefold ministry teacher pastor is. And you'll see. You'll experience Jesus as you experience Steve in the Word. So give him a warm welcome as he shares today. We don't see him a lot on Sunday. Well, we've seen him more on Sunday mornings lately, but he's he's been working as a full-time chaplain at the Dom in White City, and now he's, what, half-time now? Half-time. Okay. Well, we're glad to see more of you on Sunday, so bless you. Thank you, Dan, for that gracious introduction. It's good to be with you again this morning and a privilege to share with you and you at home. Uh, if there's any question as to whether you're welcomed, um, I mean, it should be pretty obvious that you're, you're welcome here to join us this morning. Well, my family is uh, accommodating a passion I have is for puns. And uh, I'm a dad, of course, and they're called affectionately dad jokes, right? And so I know there's a lot of dads here, and I ask you to lead the way on this because I wanted to share some of my favorite puns with you. And so, um, Dave, if you would uh, kind of show those. And I'll just read those because sometimes people at home I have the audio, but not the video, okay? Statistically, only one in seven dwarves is happy. Mm -hmm. I was wondering why the ball was getting bigger. Then it hit me. (laughs) I love that one. Will glass coffins be a success? Remains to be seen. Oh, there's the moan. I know there's going to be the moaning and the groaning. (laughs) A police officer just knocked on my door and told me my dogs are chasing people on bikes. That's ridiculous. My dogs don't even own bikes. Yeah. <laughs> My ex-wife still misses me, but her aim is starting to improve. Okay. <laughs> this is one of my favorites. My math teacher was arrested for carrying a protractor, a calculator, and a ruler. The police charged her with possession of weapons of math instruction. <laughs> Maybe not too far from the truth these days. Dad, my teacher was telling me about cloning today, but I don't think I understand it. That makes two of us. (laughs) I love making puns. It's so rewording. Oh, my goodness, yeah. Uh Uh-huh, yeah. Should we start a pandemic? Across the nation, wouldn't that be great, a pandemic? On storefronts, a pun, and then say, no one allowed entrance without wearing a smile. And then... Disclaimer, not mandated or something like that. Mm-hmm. Well, if you laugh today, there's a, some amazing things happen to you. One is that when you laughed, it relaxed the whole body. And often after a good laugh, the body is relaxed for about 45 minutes after that. Don't think that there's a method in that because I'll be preaching for the next 30 minutes. Laughter boosts the immune system, releases hormones that uh, are anti-stress, and often uh, reduces pain because it releases endorphins and the good feeling, well-being hormones. It protects the heart. It's good for your heart, good for your cardiovascular system, strengthens your heart, even burns calories. You may have lost one or two calories today. And it lightens anger's heavy load and 
may even add a couple of days to your life. A study in Norway said that those who uh, have a sense of humor live longer than those who don't have a sense of humor. And uh, socially, I think uh, it, it bonds, you know, when we laugh together, have more of a sense that I'm part of the corporate body. Uh, maybe you felt even a little better about being here after laughing a little bit. And it does all of these things. Uh, the proverb says, 17.7 says, a merry heart does good like medicine. And uh, maybe it'd be just as rewarding to go to a good laugh uh, rather than a medicine bottle. It has so many good effects on you. So God created us for joy. Where did this idea come from that we can laugh, that we can experience pleasure and joy and delight? It's not just a good idea that God had. It comes from his very nature. We are made in the image of God. And the reason that he created us with our five senses to see good things and just to hear the music today and, and enjoy the worship and to see, I was watching little Jonathan up there with the flag. It just thrilled my heart to see him like that, to see that, to taste good food and, and to savor a good meal. Where did all that come from? That God has created us to enjoy his creation and to experience delight and joy and humor. It comes from him. That's who he is. And he made us in his own image. There's a problem, though, as we know, because those senses can be so pleasurable that that can lead us away from God. We know that uh, our culture right now is dealing with social ills that are a direct result of what Paul said, men became lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God in these days. And we can probably put the root to many of the social ills that we have and the decisions that are made to the fact that pleasure has become my goal. They call that hedonism, when pleasure becomes the meaning, becomes the, the uh, that's the main thing to look for. Uh, regretfully, it can sneak into the church, that hedonistic philosophy the Apostle Paul said, I could not address the Corinthians. He said, I could not address you as spiritual men, but as carnal. Because the carnality in flesh links directly in with the, with the senses. Fortunately, they repented. And he said, look at the change when you came to God. You know, right from the start, there was a choice that had to be made to Eve. And when Satan came to, came to her, he said, look, at you can eat that. And it said when she saw that it was good to eat and when she tasted that it was good to eat, she gave it to Adam. And that started the whole process of flesh and fallen nature. She was confronted with a choice. Am I going to please God or am I going to please my senses? And she chose to please her senses. And we still have that problem today. That's why God has provided for us a refuge. He's provided for us a defense. And I want to go to the passage of scripture, very familiar to you. We want to explore that out this morning uh, from Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 5, 6, and 8 through 12. I want to share this with you. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. Then all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. So they read distinctly from the book and the law of God, and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, 
And the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn nor weep, for all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, and send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And many believe that that word joy is a relational term. It means not only do we sense God's pleasure in us, his joy, but we return that by showing gladness and rejoicing with him. As you remember, when the Israelites came out of Egypt, God said, indicted them for some of the things that are responses. And he said, and you did not serve me with gladness. The expectation was, was that they would have this joy of the Lord. There would be a delight to serve him not just out of obligation or out of duty or the things that he's told us to do, but because we sense his pleasure in that, we know that it's pleasing him. This word strength, interesting word, it means fortress, citadel, defense, a refuge. He's saying that the joy of the Lord, we get into that, relationship of joy with him, that it forms a bond that's a strength. It be- provides a defense for us. And we can see what he's referring to. could be a defense against temptation. When I'm enjoying the Lord and love with him, I'm less likely to fall into a temptation. It might be a defense against depression, against discouragement. All we have to do is read the news today. It's easy to slip into discouragement, right? I was getting into that, so I get so angry about some of the things that I read, and I just finally, and it dawned on me, I was reading through the, the Psalms, how God works in chastisement, but he always has a good plan at the end. And I said, I need to start blessing God for what he's doing in our country. And once it started that, joy started to return, and hope started to return. God is at work in our nation, regardless of what you hear on the news. It could be, in this case, it could be a defense against a morbid obsession with our failure. These people were weeping and they were mourning over their sin. And, and Nehemiah said, this probably went on for days because Ezra was reading the, 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 probably the Torah and giving the sense of it, which means that they were weeping for days. And Nehemiah probably caught this. He says, if this continues on this way, that it's going to lead them into a morbid obsession and discouragement. And so he says... God is pleased, He's, he sees the broken heart, where the sacrifices of God are broken heart, broken spirit. He's, he's, he's seeing you come back to him. And so he says, we, we have to have a defense against this morbid obsession. I have to tell you very honestly, very transparently, that for years I grew up in a very moral atmosphere, and so there's always a sense of wrongdoing, always a sense of, of guilt and shame, and carried that through a good portion of my life, even in my Christian life, I did that, and it has a very suppressing effect when you're constantly focused on your sin and remembering the things of the past, and it suppresses and lost a lot of confidence, and socially, there just isn't the same energy. All these things begin to click into place when I'm focused entirely on the past. I remember reading a scripture and changed my life because I was reading Paul, and he says, rejoice in the Lord always, and I say, how can you do that when there's so much failure that there's been in the past? And the word from the Lord came to me and said, Steve, you're not to magnify. Your responsibility is not to magnify your sin, but to rejoice in the immensity of my forgiveness. So that makes sense. What do I want people to see? Do I want them to see all my sin and all the things I've given in the past? 
Or do I want them to know the forgiveness of God and see the joy in our faces because God has dealt with our past. He's dealt with that barrier that interferes with that sense of joy and that, that refuge that he wants to establish with us. Major change in my life. So the question might be this refuge. Where do I go for this refuge, this defense, this fortress? And don't we need that in these times? I need a place where I can go where I can get joy. And the first point I want to make is the joy of the Lord is in his joyful presence. In his joyful presence. Oh, man, I was reading Psalm 1611, where David says, In your presence there is fullness of joy. In your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And I was convicted by that because I said, if I really believed that, I would have a hard time leaving the prayer room. Joy. David had every sensual joy and delight available to him. He says, nothing, nothing compares to being in the presence of the Lord, the joy of the Lord. Even out in the wilderness, oh, I long for the courts of heaven. Probably 200 singers, instrumentalists, just this glorious worship up to the Lord. He said, I miss that. There's nothing like being in the presence of the Lord. This is King David. That's why he had a heart after God. And I can honestly say to the glory of God that I've never had a span of time where there's been so much freedom, release, and joy because of what he's done of discovering the joy of being in his presence. There's just nothing. Do you realize when you come to prayer, do you realize when you come into the presence of God that you are invited into oneness with the divine Godhead, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit are available to us. They all indwell us. And that's infinite and immense joy. You come into the presence of God. It's not like, well, maybe many of us like I did for years say, well, I I sinned again, so I got to go into prayer and confess it. Jesus says, he's not sin-focused. I hate to tell you that. For those of you who grew up in that and got that impression, he's joy-focused. He's joy-focused, and sin happens to be a barrier. That's why he had to deal with it. And so that we could have that oneness and that sense of being in unity with a God of great and immense joy. It's a joy to come into his presence. I see them saying, Welcome, I've been waiting for you all this time to enjoy you and to have this time of joy and oneness. The Westminster Confession says that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. They caught it. It's a joyful relationship. I think they could have added oneness with the divine Godhead, but as it is, that's a wonderful statement to enjoy God. So I just want to focus a little bit on the Trinity, on the presence, when we come into the presence of God. You know that Jesus was anointed with joy more than all of his companions? That's what Hebrews says. It's in reference to Psalm 45, Messianic Psalm. And Hebrews says, this he said about the Son, that he was anointed with the oil of gladness over all his companions. What do you think that would look like? Jesus was the most joyful anointed man on the planet of the earth. 
And when we read something, we have a little difficulty. I shared this last night. We have a little difficulty when we read the scriptures because we see the words. But you know, most of the communication is body language and tone of voice. I can say, you idiot, and that might get a fist in the face. Or I might say, you idiot, and it's teasing. Same word, but different tone, different body language, right? And so often when we read Jesus, if we have the idea that he's often been portrayed as this very serious-minded, carrying the weight of the world on his shoulders all the time, and everything he did was so you know, eternal and significant, he just had this, this sense of, of intensity about him. I remember seeing Jesus of Nazareth a long time ago in this wonderful portrayal, but there wasn't a smile on his face the whole time. I said, he was the most joyful man on the planet. And we don't get a lot of indication of that except like in Luke 10, 17, where the 70 came back and said, we just rejoice, we're so full of joy, the demons are subject to us in your name. And it said that Jesus in that hour rejoiced in the spirit. And that word rejoicing means to leap for joy. In your mind of Jesus, can you picture him as leaping for joy and saying, oh, Father, I thank you. I thank you. You've shown these things to children. Your kingdom is being extended from me to the 12, to the 70. It's being established here on earth. And he just left for joy. I can't read the scriptures now, and I would suggest to you that when you read the gospels, that you have to read them in the context of what he said in a spirit of joy. Let me give you an example. You know, when he's talking to his mother, he says, woman, what do I have to do with you? It's not my time. It sounds a little harsh, doesn't it? Doesn't it sound like he's kind of putting his mother down a little bit and putting her in place. Well, you know, Jesus was a perfect son. He never sinned. He probably had a glorious relationship, affectionate relationship, very respectful with his mother. And he could have said something like, you know, Jewish, Jewish mothers are trying to push their children all the time into their calling. And I remember Tony Campolo, he was speaking one time, and he said, <laughs> he said the difference between Jewish mothers and, and uh, uh, Italian mothers, where he said when, when kids left the house, uh, Jewish mothers would say, don't forget your books. And he said when the Italian mothers, when the children left the house, the Italian mothers would say, don't forget your lunch. And he said, that's why they're so smart and we love to eat. You know? <laughs> That was his attitude about the Jewish mothers are pushing them into it. And I can see Jesus just shaking his head with his, you know, affectionate uh, way with his mother and just say, woman, what am I going to do with you? You know it's not my time. You're trying to push me ahead. I, I have to wait for the father's time. And of course, the father said, listen to your mother. And he changed the water into wine anyway. Yeah. yeah. A fellow named Elton Trueblood was uh, sharing with his five-year-old son a scripture about where he, uh, Jesus says, you strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. And the five-year-old boy started to laugh uproariously. He just was laughing his head off. And Elton Trueblood said, what is it? And he's trying to picture in his mind someone devouring a camel. And that picture just made him laugh and laugh and laugh. And Alan Trueblood said, maybe I'm missing something about the ministry of Jesus. Maybe there's more humor to it. And so he started to investigate this. The end of the result was a book that he wrote called The Humor of Christ and showed all the different ways that Jesus infected uh, or, or uh, inflected his, speeding, his speech with uh, humor. For instance, irony. He would often change the end point in a way that would startle people. For instance, our the prodigal, uh, uh, the uh, good Samaritan. 
you know, the, the religious, religious leaders of that day passed him up and he said, and a Samaritan came by. You don't think that brought some laughter from the Samaritans? That, hey, he's making us the hero of the story. And we're the outcasts. There's always that twist at the end that Jesus would put in. Also hyperbole, which is an exaggeration of things to make a point. And that's caused all kinds of conflicts in, in interpretation. If we take literally, if your right eye causes you to sin, cut it out. If your left hand causes you to, to sin, cut it off. I say people have taken that literally, but you never ask anybody to do that. He's just making a point. It's called hyperbole, which means I'm exaggerating a point in order to make it. And it's quite often humorous. I remember seeing a portrayal of Christ. And uh, when he was talking, he says, says, why do you take the speck out of, he's talking to the crowd, why do you take the speck out of your neighbor's eye? And he takes a staff, a walking stick, and why don't you take the log out of your own eye? And I can see him doing that, you know, with his visual imagery and uh, making the point with exaggeration. Jesus, the most anointed, joyful person. Why is that significant to us? It's because when we ask Jesus into our heart, I love that expression, receiving Jesus into our heart, because I have accepted into my heart the most joyful being on the planet, with me forever and ever, always and always, never to leave me or forsake me. I've kind of changed a little bit as I investigate, you know, my passion is for repentance and to see repentance in the body of Christ. And... Um, I was thinking of Jesus about the uh, adding a sense of humor to what he was saying or this, this, this cheerful, ebullient, uh, energetic persona that he had that attracted crowds. And, and his very first speech that's recorded is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. How do you think he said that? Do you think he said repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand? And he said he didn't, it says in scripture, he didn't talk like the Pharisees. That's the way the Pharisees talked. And it's stern, strict. And I think he said, let me give you a little background before I tell you. How. If you've been in a restaurant, you know they have, uh, there's kind of this normal din, you know, and people are, are conversing at a table. And then all of a sudden, some table will break out in laughter. And immediately, the tension goes to that table, right? And... Uh, I don't know about you, but I look for clues. I want to see, is there spilled milk or, you know, is someone soaked in something or just what happened? And uh, there's something that's very attractive about that, and I'd like to, I'd like to be at that table. And, and I see repentance in a different way, where, where God, Jesus comes to the crowd and he says, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And he's saying it this way. He says, change your mind. Change your direction, people. There's a new table in town. Come. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's right here. I can see him with that kind of mood rather than this stern, critical thing. It's an invitation. And who wouldn't want to accept Jesus into their heart because he's so joyful. They're accepting the joy and coming into unity with the entire Godhead. Oh, my gosh. I saw the Holy Spirit. Let's talk about the Holy Spirit for just a moment. I remember seeing a movie, and the movie is kind of controversial, and I, I told the people last night, I said, my, my theory is to eat the meat and throw away the bones. 
If there's something that helps me spiritually, I'll accept that, eat that. If everything else is, is off base or not theological, then I'll dismiss that. But if there's something that's, that's valuable, I'll take that. And so, uh, so I was watching this movie, and the, the way they depicted the Holy Spirit was I said, that's more what the Holy Spirit's got to be like. And it's just this cheerful, this tireless energy that's moving from one place to another nonstop. And every place this energy went, that things were recreated and flowers started to grow and colors started to change. And the sense of life-giving, the animating power of the Holy Spirit nonstop. He never ages. He never tires. He, he's never sick of things. He's always moving. That's his nature. He broods over the world that was formless and void, and he's moving and he's activating and in obedience to the word, he brings into life, even when you don't know it, this energy that he has within you. When you minister, you have no idea what's going on. Even Jesus didn't. You remember the woman that came to him and said, if I only touch his garment, and uh, uh, the Holy Spirit just healed her right there, and Jesus says, wait a minute, what happened? I wasn't even conscious of this. The Holy Spirit couldn't wait to get out there and to heal this woman and respond. That's the Holy Spirit that, says, that fills us as the Godhead. And we know the Father, that Jesus said the Father was like the prodigal who came back, wasted his life. You know the story so well, and a lot of us can relate to that. He comes back to the Father, and the Father welcomes, gives him a big hug, doesn't put him down. He says, well, you sure blew that. You'll never amount to anything. Many of those things that fathers unfortunately tell their sons when they have wrongdoing. He never asks them what he did. It's never brought up. Why? Because his whole nature is joy. And he said, this is what it's all about, to experience joy. Well, the person has come back, and I can tell you that if you've done things wrong, I've ministered to vets. My heart breaks for them because they were gifted they were gifted people, and they were functioning in the church, and they're showing leadership. And then somehow they slipped into an addiction, and then they're wrestling with this, and they come back to the VA or some places and trying to get help. But in their mind, in their heart, they say, I've blown it. It'll never be the same. I've lost my chance. Say, no, 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 no. No, no, no. God's not going to hold that sin against you. He's waiting for you to come because it's important for him. The most important thing is oneness with you and restoration. I'm going to skip a little bit but just to mention because I don't have time to develop it, but it's, it's one of the promises, one of the, the, the refuges we have is in the promise of God. He always promises joy. You can't read Isaiah, you can't read Jeremiah, you can't read Haggai, you can't read Zephaniah without them going through all this the consequences of pulling away and following, pleasing the senses rather than pleasing God. God always says, come back to me, come back to me. Fellowship and oneness is so important. Come back to me. If you return to me, I'll return to you. And we can restore that oneness again. And he, he says it over and over and over again, no matter how long that they've been so, sinning, because that's so important to him. And he always promises, if you come back, Therefore, the redeemed of the Lord shall return to Zion with singing and everlasting joy shall be upon their head. He says in Isaiah, sing, O barren one, because there will be a time when you're not seeing any fruitfulness now, but you'll be singing at some point. The promise of God is always there. No matter where we're going, 
we can come into the presence of God and know that there's joy. doesn't matter where you are, whether you're at work, at home, whether you're in a difficult situation, whether you're driving in the car, whether you're taking a trip, doesn't matter where you are. At that moment, there's a refuge that you can go to, which is the presence of God, but also to hold on to his promise that when this is over, he says, after you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace and glory himself will restore, establish, and strengthen you. He just longs to come back into a relationship and hold you once again in oneness, it's promised. But there's one other thing too, and you might ask me and say, what about those tough times I'm going through when I experienced those losses and those disappointments and, and I was, had such ambition and I had to redirect because this, things just fell apart. James chapter one, verse two, it says, count it all joy, my brethren, when you fall into various trials, when you fall into various trials. I didn't plan them, they were random, they came by other means, whatever it is. I fell into it. I didn't want it, didn't like it, and there I am. And he says this. He says, when you're in that moment, count it all joy. There's a refuge for you because when you count it all joy, not for what you're going through, he's not telling us to be full of sense pleasure at that time because the senses are battered. But he says, hold on to the fact that God will take everything that happens in your life and that he will work that together for good and he will use that that means that you had that trial that you fell into to give you more fruitfulness and give you more joy down the road. That's why you count it all joy. Yeah. Khalil Gibran, not a Christian, but he said so many good things that were in line with scripture. I want to share one with you. He says, the deeper that sorrow carves into your being, the more joy you can contain. Is not the cup that holds the wine the very cup that was burned in the potter's fire? And is it not the lute that soothes your spirit, the very wood that was hollowed with knives? Out of suffering have emerged the strongest souls and the most massive characters are seared with scars. I don't know of anybody who has reached any level of spiritual influence that hasn't gone through the mill. Suffered losses, Time does not tell us to give all the illustrations, but you know, if you talk about the history of some of our Christian leaders, the suffering they went through, the losses they went through. A fellow named Tony Stoltzfus wrote a book on leadership and he interviewed all of these Christian leaders. He found out that on the average, Christian leaders, and it took about 35, 40 years to get this point in their life where they were influencing in some uh, more massive way. And he said that there is an average of a minimum of three major valleys in their life three very destructive suffering things. And what God is saying is that he's using these to carve into our heart greater depth, greater character. That's what, that's what he, James says. Count it all joy because this will produce something. It produces patience. That word means endurance or perseverance, not just tapping your fingers waiting for something to happen. And it's like God is developing tensile strength in us. You know what tensile strength is? Is when they take a wire and they stretch it and they pull it and see how much pressure it can take before it snaps. And maybe our tensile strength is like this. And after we go through trials and trials, we realize that our tensile strength is now longer. We can endure things a little bit longer. And we go through another, uh, another uh, problem and then it can stretch it a little bit tighter and tighter until we can endure anything. Why is he doing this? He's making us into his image of long suffering so that we can have oneness with the God who endures, 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 endures and lasts and still comes out shining. John Wimber, 
I love John Wimmer. He's leader of the Vineyard Movement. Love John Wimmer. Humble, gr great man. And he used to say, I don't trust any man that doesn't walk with a limp and smell like smoke. <laughs> and he's referencing the fact that, you know, Jacob wrestling uh, with, the, uh, with God and going through that trial and then also the three men in the fire, you know, willing to endure that for their faith. And uh, he said, in other words, what's he saying? I, I need to know that a man has been through the mill and he knows what he's talking about. I won't take the time to do it. I love it. It's a sermon in its own self. But if you go to John 7, 37, uh, 39, where John says, if any man thirsts, let him come to me. Out of the, As Scripture said, out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. He's talking about the Holy Spirit there, it says. And he also says that word for, for uh, rains also is the same word that's used when he builds a house on, on the rock and the, and the floods came. It's the same word. So Jesus is talking about massive uh, movements of water through us. And there, there's many things that, that enhance that flow of the Spirit the, so that we have a, a greater quantity in a sense. There's a, a stronger move of the Holy Spirit through us. But the way that that happens is you have to have a canyon. If, if, you, if the water just came off the mountain and just went over the surface and it was shallow, it wouldn't go anywhere. It has no direction. But when you cut a canyon, then that water flows through that canyon with power. And Jesus is essentially saying, when you come to me, he says, out of your innermost being, you're going to flow that. How does that happen? He said, with many trials and tribulations, you enter the kingdom. There's going to be some hard times, but know this. He says that I'm deepening out a canyon because in time, you will flow with more and more and more of the Holy Spirit, greater power, greater wisdom. That's the plan. Jesus, when he went through his crucifixion, every sense that he had was battered and bruised. What he saw, what he heard was crucifying. What he saw was anger. What he felt was immense pain. You say, what was his refuge in that time? And it was this, as the Hebrews said, his mind, we can't get into the mind of the Son of God entirely, but he's thinking that I'm going to be with the Father and I'm going to ascend up to him. I'm going to return to my glory and the Holy Spirit's going to be poured out, and millions are going to come. And the Lord, the Father's going to be able to embrace all these people. And it said, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. And when you go through your hard time, there's a refuge you can go to. And the refuge is, right here, God is present with me in all of his joy. And also, there's a promise that joy is going to come after this trial but also the refuge that this trial is producing something and I'm going to be a much stronger, better leader. A fellow wrote a book, Paul Billheimer, Don't Waste Your Sorrows. He said, don't let your trials make you bitter. Let them make you better in due time. Amen? This is a wonderful evangelistic tool. I don't know. You remember Paul and Silas in prison? They're rejoicing in the Lord. They chose to move into that refuge in that moment and uh, said the other prisoners were listening. Of course, who sings in prison? Got their attention. And also, in Acts, when they were meeting together, it said they met with gladness and simplicity of heart, and many joined them. In these days, God has given us a marvelous opportunity 
brothers and sisters. He's given us an opportunity in a world that's sad, in a world that is looking for humor and can't find it, and going through all kinds of despair after pandemics and all that. And he says, if my people, like Isaiah 60, there's a deep darkness over all the people, but rise shine, for my glory is upon you. If we walk into our workplaces with joy, if we greet that waitress with joy, if we decide to wake up in the morning, I'm going to bring joy into my house today. And we bring that joy that people are going to take notice because they're longing for it. And they can say, hi, why are you so happy? Why are, how can you be joyful? He said, I've got something so great inside me. It's the joy of the Lord. And you can have it too. Amen. I just have one other admonition. I learned a long time ago that people don't have to direct my emotions. That I'm in charge of my own emotions, how I respond. And so I say this to you as an admonishment. Don't let any person, don't let anything, don't let any newscast, don't let any world power steal your joy. Amen? Amen. God bless you today. Thank you for giving me the time. Mm -hmm. So... stand up. Steve's going to be up here, and there is an impartation in the spirit when we laid hands on ourselves earlier, and that was imparting. And it's not like Steve's going to automatically give you joy, but like he said, we choose into it. It's The onus is on us to receive the impartation. So if you feel like, you know, we, we choose into it, we can go home and just have joy we can live in that i know that i often think that of the welsh revival that it was marked by supernatural joy it was the sign and the wonder that swept that swept 200,000 people into the kingdom in just a couple of years in 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 wales and i think that's going to be the mark of the end time revival don't you is joy do you already feel that very sense that we can choose into it even more. And it is a sign and a wonder because nobody can argue with the logic that you have supernatural joy marking your whole atmosphere continually. And they don't. And they know it. So the evangelistic dimension of joy is right there as well. So um, Cheryl and team are going to come up to the front as well and minister healing to you. Kelly had that great testimony for healing and and uh, if you've had chronic pain in your arm or any kind of chronic pain, Kelly, why don't you come up and just, just lay hands on anybody that wants that. She'll be up here. Anybody that's had, wants a miracle that she had, she has faith for it for you. She has faith for it for you because she experienced it. Okay? So if you have any kind of uh, any kind of ministry need you'd like prayer for come on up and and receive that ministry right now will you please and if uh yeah just go in the happiness of jesus okay thanks for being with us today